Right now, we are going to be chatting to Rebecca Davis, as we always do on a Thursday for Plan B. Rebecca, good to see you. Hello, John. You and I were just reminiscing about uh, time spent on a roof in Pretoria <laughs> back there next week. I know. I was just thinking, John, how funny it is that this Thursday and next Thursday, all the attention of the country is on the North Gauteng High Court. Indeed, indeed. And, uh, well, I suppose, I mean, you and I were speculating. Nobody seems entirely sure as to how many more days there are to go on the Oscar Pistorius murder trial. I think when we reconvene on Thursday, it'll be day 42 or 43, something like that. A lot longer than most people anticipated, I think. I mean, it really feels like an eternity. I'm sure more for you, John, you were really on the front line. (laughs) But I think a lot of us will be happy, and I'm sure Pistorius himself as well, to see it all wrapped up. Just to get some sort of resolution, absolutely. I wonder who's going to be walking out of that courtroom as triumphantly as Helen Zilla did today. Yes, indeed. There'll be a great many people watching. I'm absolutely certain of that. Um, a damp squib, do you think, Helen Zilla, getting the tapes? There was a bit of a delay, uh, nothing untoward. She's got the tapes. And I guess people are saying, well, what happens now? Yeah, I mean, so she has indicated that the DA is going to respect the Supreme Court's ruling that the media will have to apply for special permission. So they won't be able to reveal the results, which I imagine must be extremely frustrating for the DA. I mean, can you imagine Helen Zilla kicking off her shoes, (laughs) pouring herself a glass of wine, putting that (laughs) tape on and then being unable to tweet anything about it? Yeah. I mean, it would would absolutely... I wonder if that's what they're doing. Do you think they're behind closed doors, (laughs) listening to the tapes as we speak? What? It must be fantastic. Uh, Yeah. Intriguing, to say the least. Absolutely. Right. Uh, public order policing. You were at a briefing, I think, yesterday with the police top brass, and it was a little concerning for you. Why? I thought it was really concerning, and I wondered uh, at certain points if I was going mad because the members of the committee did not seem to be finding it concerning. Um, it just is part of this trend, John, that we seem to be seeing now towards an increasingly militaristic, protest-averse society, a police state, in fact. And, you know, every time we have these horrific instances of police brutality, Marikana, um, Mido Machia, the, the taxi driver, Andris Tatane, there's a lot of hoo-ha about how the problem lay in the original militarization of the police under Behi Tele and then mm. Susan Shabangu, the shoot to kill, etc. Mm, mm. There's always a lot of hand-wringing about that. But now here we have the police top brass, Commissioner Riepiecha, saying that they want $3 billion to boost the public order policing in this country substantially. And we're talking, for instance, we currently have 10 water cannons for the whole country, right? Obviously used to disperse uh, protesters in a pretty... Not always pointed properly, apparently. Well, quite. Yes. And, you know, in a pretty forceful fashion. Now they want nine water cannons per province, right? So that's a massive increase. So they're looking to hugely boost the number of riot police, essentially, we have in this country. And while this might make a lot of people, particularly perhaps middle-class people, sleep more soundly, thinking that, you know, their property is protected, etc., there are really sinister, sinister implications of this. And also the the kind of discourse that accompanies it. Yesterday at the briefing, for instance, where General uh, Elias Mawela was saying, you know, we've seen this upsurge in... um, challenges to the authority of the republic and we cannot tolerate these challenges to the authority and um also it's not just that they're boosting arsenal and that they're boosting numbers of police they're also boosting essentially spying mechanisms for communities so that they're, they're increasing their numbers of information gatherers information officials they're bringing in long-range audio devices which will enable them to listen in on conversations Pierre yesterday said, you know, if somebody is going to blockade a road, there's someone in that community who knows about it. And again, a rather sinister implication that they really are going to be sort of spying on communities for evidence of unrest, for evidence of protest, and then looking to clamp down on that protest as soon as possible. I mean, 
we are in a country where the right to assemble, the right to protest is, is one of the cornerstones of our democratic constitution. And there's every indication that the government, first of all, has resigned themselves to the fact that there are going to be more and more protests, more and more violent protests, but that the approach to that seems to be not to work on alternative strategies to address community grievances, but to throw the weight of the police at them in order to shut the stuff down as soon as it happens. Mm. I don't know about you, John, but I don't like the sound of that at all. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it speaks to looking at the symptom rather than the cause. I mean, there are certain things that we know. There has been a surge in the number of uh, very often violent demonstrations in this country, but I think what needs to be understood is that there is a reason for that. Mm. And if you're not addressing the reason, I mean, you can you can club the protesters as much as you like. It's not going to stop the protests. I mean, they're just going to flare up elsewhere. And in fact, very often perhaps get a little bit more violent. Quite. So, so that needs to be borne in mind. And I mean, the astonishing thing is... Uh, and this is a, this is an ancillary issue, is that three billion is having to be spent on this, as opposed to pumping three billion into service delivery. Absolutely. Um, so I mean, there are, there are there are so many issues to discuss around this. But as you say, I think first and foremost, it is in the rhetoric that you hear coming from police top brass more than anything else, and then you start examining the other issues. Too. And John, not just from police top brass. I have a reliable source in Parliament who told me that in a committee meeting the other day, a member of the ANC and MP said. We may have over-democratized this country, and it is time to remilitarize the police, and received a lot of head-nodding, a lot of affirmation, and that really seems to be the sentiment in government at the moment, that, that there is a problem here. Zuma today, for instance, just this morning, President Zuma was addressing the Progressive Professionals Forum. And it was reported that um, he said, when, when, when you're asked why there's so many violent protests, you must not be shy to say why. Why are there no protests in other countries? I mean, an astonishing <laughs> statement. Does he watch the news? Has he seen anything happening in Ferguson in the US, mm. the London riots three years ago? Mm. The idea that we're the only country that has, has protests is nonsense. Yeah, and then also, John, the fact that, Yes, we have violent protests, but the vast majority of protests in this country are peaceful. Mm. 11,000 out of a total of about uh, 13,000, I think, last year. I mean, that's, that's huge. That, it's not the case that every protest we have turns violent, that we have such a huge issue with that. Mm. And again, I mean, if you look at the American example, the most recent American examples, plural, uh, it's the protests inevitably get worse when they are greeted by heavy-handed police action. Exactly. That's one thing that there was no mention of in the briefing, that the presence of the police itself can be an agitation. And another thing, John, no mention at all about alternative strategies to defuse the crowd other than through the use of either real weapons mm. or what they call pyrotechnics, which is a really chilling euphemism to me, which means tear gas and water cannons and the rest of it. So there wasn't any mention of, for instance, the Met Police in London use a technique called kettling where they try and yes. you know, pen people in together. None of that. It was kind of weapons or nothing. But John, just one further point if I might. I think that it's also important that we in the media take a good long hard look at ourselves in this matter because I've heard numerous protesters and community leaders say that one of the reasons they resort to violence is because they know they are guaranteed media attention mm. when they do. You know, it's just the case. The spectacle of burning tires on a road will get photographers there. Pensioners walking to, to Parliament peacefully, mm. not so much. Yeah, it's a multi-layered problem, isn't it? Um, and I, I suppose it does, again, then uh, force us to reflect on the recent protests in Nyanga, for example, mm. and, and various other parts of Cape Town uh, that involved the burning of buses and so forth. Mm. What is the correct response? Um, and I'm not sure I know what the answer is, um, but it's obviously difficult as well to, to try and get a, a grip on these things, particularly when they're so unpredictable and very often can flare up very quickly and, of course, uh, as we said, are very often so violent.
That's right. I do think, though, that the, the DA's response to, to the briefing, which was to complain that Cape Town wasn't getting enough riot police, I thought, you know, I'd like to see some, some opposition parties saying, hold on a sec, can we just talk about how crazy this is all getting in mm. terms of this, this militaristic discourse rather than merely saying, hey, can we have more of those water cannons too? Is there any, is there any cre- credibility to the argument put forward by Cape Town Mayor Patricia DeLille, for example, that the protests, the most recent protests, are political in nature, that they are being instigated by, at the moment, I guess, faceless uh, people. Do you think they hold water, those allegations? I don't know about the most recent protests, John, because I've been away for the past two weeks. But, I mean, this constant seeking, the DA is, is a big fan of this, of a third force, even when it came down to the farm worker protests, which we saw last year, where there was a constant suggestion that these were artificially fermented by ANC or, or allied forces. I mean, we all knew that the farm workers had abundant reason to protest, you know. They were paid a, a very small living wage and having to, to, to live often in very poor conditions. So, th- I mean... I, I understand that sometimes there may actually be some validity around, but the, the 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 sort of grasping towards that seems to me to be a problem. In that, let's look a little deeper as well and see: is there actually legitimate grievance here as well? Mm. Next topic, uh, which is also, I guess, a difficult one, the amount of media attention that has been given the economic freedom fighters. And I guess the fact that we are not talking about it just adds to that amount of, of coverage. But there is this argument that they are getting a disproportionate amount of media coverage. That's right. And I think it was uh, former Sunday Times editor Ray Hartley who this week said that he was estimating that they were getting about 90% of the political media coverage at the moment. Of course, that's probably changed today where the DA obviously will get the lion's share of the headlines for, mm. the, for the spy tapes grab. But actually, it probably... As we're speaking, John, um, the EFF was leading a debate in Parliament about mine workers' conditions. And I was wondering, and I hope this isn't the case, but I was wondering if they were planning to stage something extra special there in order to yes. <laughs> kind of grab the headlines back because we've seen that that is their technique. I think it's very interesting, John, to see how the DA is responding to the fact that the EFF is winning the, the majority of attention here. And I thought it was interesting today, for instance, to see the the DA sort of hashtagging their spy tape mission, saying, um, give us the tapes, making it into a five-word slogan, very similar to the EFF two weeks ago, pay back the money. Yeah. So it, it seemed to me to be as, as if they were actually taking a few lessons from the EFF there in terms of packaging these messages into very short, easily shoutable, bangable on the table slogans. And it'll be interesting to see how, how they are going to, to respond. Are they going to follow or are they going to take a completely different tack? Mm. Yeah, I found the EFF in Parliament very interesting. Uh, I was watching uh, a bit of the, the session yesterday afternoon. Erin uh, Matsualeri, amongst other uh, ministers, uh, was, was taking questions. He's feisty, Erin mm. Matsualeri. It's, it's quite extraordinary. I find him quite impressive, actually. Mm. Um, in fact, he was a lot feistier than the EFF MPs uh, on yesterday's session. Um, but it, it, the, it depends. The reaction that you get from the EFF depends very much on who else is in Parliament, who is standing up on the other side of the floor. Mm. And they are, it seems to me, prepared to uh, go with the flow if they don't believe the issue is important or they don't believe the minister is important. But Mm. very often you can predict when a session is going to get rowdy because, for example, mining becomes the the talking point or the president makes an appearance and so forth, Um, which Mm. also I think some people would consider opportunistic. That's right. I mean, they do... They do pick their issues. Uh, the two big issues of the week, it seems to be the connection between mining and earthquakes and GMO, GMO food. They keep bringing these two up. So they, they're quite <laughs> interesting in the way they select their topics. But I think it's also interesting, John, that, for instance, today, Balek Mbete, the speaker, um, there was a moment when an EFF MP 
wanted to read a motion without notice, which the DA had objected to. And I think, as far as I know, parliamentary rules hold that if another party has objected to it, you cannot finish reading it. But Balek Mbete today actually capitulated and said, you know what, just read the damn statement. It's fine. And to me, it was it was a, a, perhaps an example that she just has learned to pick her battles with these guys because there's absolutely no indication that they are in any way dimmed or daunted yes. by the, the, the committee looking into their behavior. And I think if parliament is to, to continue, the speaker also just has to occasionally give them a bit of rain, mm. let them let them have their say, and then hope to move on. Yeah, because you get the sense that the response of Balek Ambeta last week, for example, uh, or was it the week before, only encouraged the EFF. They like that type of standoff in Parliament. They do. They you get it. the impression that if the ANC had responded differently, things might have turned out a bit differently too. Uh, perhaps the situation could have been diffused. I think I think that's exactly right, and I think you're right that. They, I mean, for them, the, the oxygen of attention is, is there as long as they continue to make these scenes in Parliament. And we continue to give them airtime because they're entertaining, John. They're, they're, they're sort of fun, and that's perhaps a facetious word to use. But, mm. you know, the spectacle of Parliament has become much more entertaining. And I think beyond anything else, Rebecca, perhaps they have started to make Parliament relevant again. I there was... Uh, there was a point, uh, most recently, in fact, when all Parliament was was this body that used to rubber stamp executive decisions. That's all they did, uh, and they paid lip service to opposition complaints and uh, and those sorts of things. But given what happened during the president's questions uh, a week and a half ago or so, um, it became relevant again, and you got the impression that the the schoolboy who was out on the playground getting bullied day in and day out was starting to fight back. And in fact, was not alone. Other sort of uh, meek. Uh, school children were joining the fight too and also smacking the bully across the, the back of the head. And, and it's changed the dynamic to a certain extent. Of course, you can't overcome the massive majority that the ANC has in Parliament. But at the very least, they are, in a, in, in a certain way, a respect, being called to account. Yes, and I, th- yeah, I think that's right. And I think that the EFF has galvanised galvanized affairs. And it's interesting that you mentioned school children, actually, John, because I was in there a couple of weeks ago in the National Assembly and some school kids had been brought in. And initially they looked so reluctant. They were just lying there. And then the EFF guys started going at it, and honestly, the school kids' delight. They were like, oh, my goodness, this is like WWE. It's better. They were nudging each other and laughing. Obviously, it's, Parliament shouldn't be like that. Yes, of course. It shouldn't be a pantomime. Yeah, that's not what we – yeah, absolutely. I don't think that's the argument we're making. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, there needs to be a middle line found somewhere. That's it. And I think Tony Leon had it exactly right in his Business Day column this week where he said one of the things the EFF is doing better than the DA is owning issues in a really kind of authentic way. And he said, you know, you look at the DA MPs and you're like, what drives you? Are you here for the salary? What is it that you can authentically and passionately embody in Parliament? And that's something that the EFF is doing much better than the DA at the moment. Mm. We are, as always, Rebecca, running out of time. But you also wanted to talk about the fact that 50% of Viking warriors are female. We have about a minute (laughs) to discuss that very important issue. Back in the day, it used to be thought that it was the male Vikings who'd go forth and the women who'd sit at home like uh, Hager the Horrible's wife, Helga. But um, recent uh, DNA testing on Viking bones has proved that, in fact, as many as 50% of Viking warrior skeletons may, in fact, be female. And they included swords and shields, John. So they were by no means sitting at home plaiting each other's hair. They were out there on the front lines of the invasions. (laughs) That's a terrifying thought, isn't it? And I've just been reliably uh, told, uh, well, not reliably, I've just been told, in fact, from the uh, Ace producer team here in studio that we have a bit more time. We're going to shuffle a few uh, interviews around, uh, given how important this issue is, Rebecca. So let's examine it in a bit more detail. Does it speak to this idea? There is this sort of... uh, this argument that if somehow more women were in positions of power in this world, it would be a lot better place. But is this an example that perhaps 
that might not be necessarily true. Wow, way true. to spin that, John. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to make quite a different point there. No, I just think it's interesting because often the defenders of very traditional gender roles, that mm. women should be in the kitchen and men should be out there, fall back on strange notions of evolutionary biology or history where men were always hunters and the women always stayed at home. And when we get evidence like this, which shows that actually these gender roles may not have been as concrete and ossified as we think, then I think it's very interesting to consider that what are the basis for these beliefs then, that, mm. that you know the men are always the active ones and the women were just, were just at home. And there have been many historical examples that have smashed those stereotypes. I mean, Margaret Thatcher is a case in point. I guess Imelda Marcos, to a lesser extent, is a case in point. <laughs> yeah, bringing it uh, closer to home. Absolutely. Well, as always, it's been an absolute delight talking to you, Rebecca. Thank you very much indeed for Thanks, coming John. in. Thanks, John. See you in Pretoria. Yeah, look forward to it. Thank you. Rebecca, back with uh, John Maytham. Uh, in fact, no, she'll be in Pretoria next week. So uh, perhaps, perhaps the week after, back with John Maytham uh, for another edition of Plan B.